Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Religion Prof podcast. I'm delighted to be back in the sound booth with my colleague Ankur Gupta, uh, who we've been working on this uh, project, as you'll have heard in past episodes, uh, related to artificial wisdom. And we're doing fun stuff and we're having cool ideas, we think, about where things will go next. Of course, when two geeks think something is cool, it may not uh, meet everybody's criteria for coolness. But if you share our interest in the intersection of things like robots and ethics, uh, religion and science fiction, uh, philosophy and computing, then it's cool what we're working on. Uh, is that a fair statement, Ankur? Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for being back in the sound booth. Uh, should we should we let people know that we're basically uh, finding that this is a means to productivity and essentially note taking without any need for scribbling? Yeah, I think uh, I think so. And and uh, admitting that we're geeks is also probably not terribly dangerous because it should be obvious uh, just from listening to any podcast we've ever done. So. Yes, but we we cranked our geek credentials up a notch very recently, um, and not only attended Starbase Indie, but uh, presented at Starbase Indie, and that's a place where geeks, nerds, cosplayers, uh, yeah, and there are slashes between all those words because they're overlapping categories, um, largely uh, entirely overlapping circles there maybe. Uh, are present in abundance, and we were among them, and I was uh, dressed as I thought appropriate for these occasions. Uh, what were your thoughts about uh, Starbase Indie? I mean, neither of us had been to this before, uh, so... I, I thought it was a really interesting blend of the traditional con fair that you get, you know, mm -hmm. when you have fandom, and uh, a really interesting set of educational and scientific programming. Uh, which yeah. is the side that we were on, um, with panels by lots of different people, all with PhDs, uh, talking about, you know, the, the science of Star Trek and the physics of tractor beams and all of this kind of stuff. And then we were sort of stuck in there um, talking about the Star Trek universe, certainly, but as a backdrop to a more important academic conversation from the perspective of ethics and computing and all that kind of thing. And I think it blended really well with the theme and the conceptualization of it. Um, and I was very surprised to see that people think uh, um, meaningfully about how Star Trek affects and informs their, you know, decisions that they make in life. That it, that, you know, that Star Trek made an effort to try to be this philosophical, uh, exploration of a lot of different aspects of our lives, and it was refreshing to see that that's true even in its fandom. So. Yeah, there was something that uh, Lisa Meese, uh, who was essentially sort of emceeing a lot of the sessions and has been uh, presiding over the board uh, that uh, that runs and uh, you know, plans Starbase Indie, uh, but she said that those of us present have lots of fictional universes that we love but there are relatively few that we'd actually want to inhabit. And I remember that phrase really struck me because it is something that's distinctive about Star Trek. Uh, it is not always utopian in the sense that it does sometimes get dark uh, in places. And certainly if you go back and rewatch the original series, 
and be like, oh my gosh, the sexism in this. How did I not uh, realize this when I was a kid? I hope it didn't influence me because I was watching this all the time. But yeah, even though it's not perfect in lots of different ways, it is offering a vision that's supposed to be hopeful. And I think that's why people gather and dress up for Star Trek much more, I think, and to a much greater degree, uh, which mu- with much more extensive um, prosthetics and things like that added into the mix than for any other fandom. Uh, does that seem your... Is that your perception as well? Um, I'm not sure about that they dress up more than other fandoms. There are some pretty serious-minded fandoms out there for different IPs. Um, you know, for example, uh, fantasy really knocks it out of the park. But let's just say that um, they did not leave anything to be desired in their commitment to looking the part. Um, they did a great job of that. Um, and speaking to the, the philosophy of Star Trek, the world that we'd like to live in, uh, comment uh, that, uh, that you mentioned, I think it's really neat that Star Trek has this sort of implicit assumption of good intentions among the people who are in the Federation, um, at least among the people who are on the enter- uh, Enterprise. So that, I don't know, I, I think that that feeds in to some extent to this idea. Um, so. Yeah, and I think there are probably some things that we could uh, think about and work into our project um, in the longer term, if not in the shorter term, because the way that uh, Star Trek has treated artificial intelligence um, and the way it's treated ethics, for that matter, uh, the way it's treated reason and emotion, all have some bearing on this project of ours, I think, in interesting ways. Uh, Spock, you know, is an ideal for you know certain types of people. For some, he's he's not really supposed to be an ideal, but he he certainly became that. And yet, we have yeah, we have him on the one hand trying to control his emotions, and we have at the other end of the spectrum, you know, once we get into the next generation, Commander Data, who is striving to add emotion into the mix of his purely reasoned uh, artificial intelligence. In general, on Star Trek, machines have been you know, computational devices, even if they're somewhat intelligent, and so they're more liable to kill you meaninglessly and purpose, you know, without purpose than sentient beings are. Right? I mean, Klingons are dangerous, they're warlike, but you're really a danger if a machine's programming has gotten into this loop where it thinks its mission is now to, to wipe things out. And there's something interesting there that we can, we can work in, uh, not least because Star Trek you know, is trying both to be a warning about possible negative directions and provide social commentary, but also to provide a hopeful future. And if there's an area in which it wasn't uh, hopeful enough, it was in the uh, models of our uh, communication devices and things like that. Uh, If it was too hopeful, it was probably in um, warp drive technology and things like that, although we still have some time to get there, I suppose, uh, for major discoveries. But what do you think, when you've watched Star Trek, or any any depictions of you know, artificial intelligences of any sort, um, but maybe in particular the ones that are liable to kill us. Uh, as a computer scientist, how do you view some of the depictions of AI in science fiction? I think that it's, uh, I mean, it ranges from the realistic to the uh, ridiculous, for sure. Um, 
you kind of have to realize that AI depictions in movies and books and things of this nature are designed for dramatic effect and they're designed to tell a narrative and this sort of thing. So in a certain sense, accuracy isn't the goal mm -hmm. and, uh, and you can't and shouldn't fault works of fiction for not being accurate. So um, I don't think that that... Uh, I think it's unfair, as unfair as to say that, well, Superman is impossible, so why bother doing it? Um, but, you know, we're, we're getting there. I mean, to, to bring it back a little bit closer to things that we thought were impossible, we probably never imagined that a computer would, um, I don't know, make a, a, a restaurant reservation for us um, and then let us know the details. That actually is possible. Um, Google Duplex recently had a, um, uh, a reveal where they talked about this technology and they're planning to roll it out in, in Android devices at some point. Um, and it's a very compelling kind of thing. It's five minutes of um, an AI machine talking to a human being to make a, a, to make a room reservation or a hair appointment or this kind of thing. And to do so in a way that the human being on the other side doesn't know that they're talking to a computer. Mm. Um, that's pretty amazing all in and of itself. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder what the, you know, the, the implications of that might be ethically as well as experientially um, for consumers. On Star Trek, of course, you know, it was working, working. It was, you know, uh, a lot slower uh, as a computer, right? And with all the flashing lights and buttons and they did have tape reels, didn't they? Uh, or had they? Yeah, it wasn't quite was, digital. That was considered right? fast from the 80s, right? right. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, there are a lot of things that uh, the interpretations of what technology would look like then that we thought would be fantastic involved a lot of buttons yeah. and uh, flashing lights and all of this kind of thing. And, you know, we, we don't want so much flashing lights yeah. now. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, they still use CRT screens, which is, mm -hmm. I think, the most uh, uh, exciting thing. It was yeah. mostly black and white. Um, you know, there were all yeah. kinds of things that they just couldn't imagine um, were possible. So, yeah. yeah. So we're we're uh, always veering off into sci-fi and thinking of fun ways to connect the work we're doing with a, a general audience, but we're also really interested in, you know, digging in a, a deep and thoughtful way. Uh, and hoping that we manage to do justice both to the the real computing aspects of these matters, right? How do you program a machine to do ethics? But also, what do ethics mean? What can we learn about human ethics from this effort? And what you know, what kinds of ethical reasoning you know break down when we try to program them into machines? And I think you know there's some interesting things that we're coming across related to. You know, what might or might not be an ethical decision, right? When two things seem to be equal, right? There, there's no real way to choose between them. Uh, people have preferences of a particular starship captain or something like that, but it may not be an ethical question which of the two a driverless car should hit, right? And we've, I've been thinking recently about whether machines, you know, and the randomization of things where there's no ethical basis for a decision isn't actually something that on the one hand we have internally, right? We can just choose something, right? We can just say, okay, I'm going to pick something. But we can also throw a dart at a 
board, we can flip a coin, we can cast lots, we can roll dice. And it never struck me until we were having one of our conversations that the use of dice or of a coin is basically the use of a machine, right? A very simple machine, but a machine. And so we've been deferring to machines in the context of ethics, decision-making, and wisdom-related matters for as long as we can trace human history. And that surprised me. I hadn't really thought about that. Um, you as a computer scientist, though, where you know ones and zeros and all these things are par for the course, uh, may have thought about you know what's the history of our interaction with binary things and randomization more than somebody in the humanities has. Uh, you know, what's your take on that? Um, uh, machines are fundamentally just things that help us make decisions, right? Or they can do some kind of computation for us. So, I mean, you know, an abacus was a machine. It required a human operator, um, but it did quick math for us. Um, I think it's useful to realize that we've been using machines all this time. I wonder how far we can push that uh, thought and whether or not it has any uh, detailed implications in the way that we think about computing in general. Um, certainly, you know, pulling it back a little bit to a more modern age, the development of computer science is structurally built upon this notion of something called a Turing machine, um, which is a an abstraction of how we interpreted brain function to work at that time. So, you know, current computing in a sense is taking inspiration from what we believe our structure is as human beings and one could argue that the reverse is also true to some extent because of these kinds of simplified machines that you're talking about so I think you know I mean there's there's something to explore there um, I'm not exactly sure where that leads I think we um, are just getting started in that kind of a part of the conversation but uh, the biological and the machine, um, as they inter interleave with each other conceptually, I think is an interesting space to, to think about. Yeah, we had a, an interesting question at Starbase Indy about you know, whether human beings aren't just a kind of machine, and therefore, you know, the distinction itself is is somewhat artificial. Um, for those, for someone like you who's been involved in the efforts to replicate, you know, on a on the scale that we can, some of the functions of a human brain in a human crafted machine. Uh, I think I think there's there's something there that's worth talking about as well. Uh, both, you know, to what extent are we machines? To what extent are our brains computers? And to what extent is that just an analogy that breaks down? But also, I mean, is is reality itself fundamentally uh, mechanical? You know, is it fundamentally mental? Is it fundamentally computational? Is it fundamentally organic? You know, or is it fundamentally something that doesn't fit into any of these categories, but gives rise to all these different kinds of things? Um, that's, you know, that's philosophy, metaphysics, but I think computer science, you know, should interject from time to time and say, well, from our perspective, here's how things look. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that it's easy to say that human beings are composed of machinery, right? And machinery is the, the physical sequence of objects that allows us to execute certain tasks. 
Um, so for example, what we observe in our uh, vision is a series of complicated mechanical actions that have taken place that allow you know cell interactions of this with that and some kind of uh, you know neural transmission that is processed through a brain unit and then it provides us some kind of projected image of what we think is around us. Um, so in that sense, we're all machines, right? I think the interesting part of artificial intelligence, decision-making, ethics, and all of this kind of thing is what you do with that sensory input. And I think that's the same kind of question that computers that are fashioned in sci-fi as being able to act independently also have to try to kind of address in some way, is that you take any kind of sensory, neural, whatever input that you want, and it, at some level a decision must be made. And that portion of the decision-making can be utterly logical. It can be some mix of logical and emotional. It can be purely emotional. It could have some uh, third component to it that I'm not mentioning here, or some fourth component, or some complicated mix of many components. Um, and so I think that's, you know, I think it's hard to just say, yes, we are machines. No, we are not machines. I think we are composed of machinery, and then how that turns into intelligence and wisdom and ethical uh, sense and morality and all of that thing. I think that's a somewhat more complicated question. Um, and to speak to your point about are we real or whatever, I mean, I think that it's easy to say that we, uh, reality is at the very least a projection of what our sensory machinery observes around the mm -hmm. world. Right. I mean, whether or not we are or not is a metaphysical question that I'm not sure I'm capable of addressing. But what our interpretation of the world is, is definitely based upon our sensory input. And I think one easy way to explain that is if you have two people looking, let's say, at um, the same scene in the world and one of them is colorblind and the other one is not, is one not seeing reality? as compared to the other? Or are they both seeing reality as influenced by their perception or their projected interpretation of what the sensory input is? So, Yeah, and there are big metaphysical you know, and philosophical and ideological questions you know, that relate to some of these analogies. Um, and you know, religion is full of them. You know, and oftentimes, you know, philosophers have pointed out that the analogies become problematic, or the the attempts to make contrast sometimes are problematic. Right, um, the whole ethos behind uh, what's known as the intelligent design movement is that these things can't be created through natural processes. Therefore, they must have been designed by some intelligent being. But of course, all the intelligent beings that we know have an intelligence that's rooted in precisely the kinds of mechanisms we find in those cells and things. And so, is it just that? mechanism gives rise to mind, or is it mind gives rise to mechanism? Or, you know, do they keep looping around and, um, you know, the whole of the cosmos in some wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey sort of way uh, ends up being like that. Can a machine have free will is another question that came up at Starbase Indy. Um, and, of course, that's really at the heart of the question of can humans have free will, because to the extent that we understand ourselves as machines as functioning mechanically through natural processes, then where does free will come into the mix? And if if any field outside of 
uh, philosophy is going to break in and say, well, we've, we've got something useful to say here. I think, again, computer science is going to be, yeah, well, here's when we work with machines and intelligence and decision making, here's what freedom could mean within that framework. Here's what the very nature of the machine excludes as a possibility. And so if you mean freedom by that, then if you mean that by freedom, then you've got a problem. Can a machine be free? I, I don't know um, any more than anybody knows about whether a human can be free. Mm. But I, I think one way to tackle the question or at least try to address yeah. it is to think about what the purpose of computer science might be in informing the more human perspective on these questions. Um, a computer scientist typically takes the real world and looks at it and says, well, that's too much to process at once. So what I'm going to do is create a simplified abstract model of the world which captures enough features that a solution here might give us an approximate answer in the real world, but it isn't the real world from that point of view. And then you just take those assumptions, you take those limitations, and you hopefully reduce the computational space and the computational complexity to the point where you can come up with a solution in this simplified abstract world and then hopefully project those results onto the real world. And, and a successful model is both simultaneously simple enough and rich enough in its complexity to give us a good approximation of that real world. So that's the typical computer science approach to this question. Um, what you describe sounds exactly like what our senses do, right? They take a f fuller array of you know, input data that, in theory, it might be possible to process, but our eyes only see a portion of it, right? Our brains limit again and focus in on things. You know, um, our ability not to see things that are right in front of us you know, has been studied, and uh, those studies have been popularized. Very common in computer yeah. scientists, by the way, to not see things in front of you. <laughs> um, I'm not going to comment on that, but I think it's uh, there's the, a stereotype of professors in general that uh, could apply across a range of fields. Can a machine be as free as a human being can be, then? Maybe that's the way of putting the question. Yeah, I think that is a better way of putting the question. And uh, again, I don't know. Um, it, I think a little bit of it depends on whether or not a human uh, is capable of being free, right? Like, if you go with the presumption that a human can be free, then all we have to do is figure out whether free will is computable. Okay, but I, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm, but I'm thinking more in terms of, you know, is, is it realistic to hope that the computing realm, the technological realm, will replicate human mental capacities? I think that's the question. The philosophical question of, you know, will that give a machine freedom really depends on, do human beings have freedom? And there's a sense in which, on the one hand, I think that our efforts to replicate might give us some clues as to how to answer these questions. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there have been plenty of times when we've managed to replicate things and we're not able to answer the underlying philosophical questions, or as I suggested, the attempt to replicate actually helped us to understand how this thing works. Right? right. It's like, yeah, we we flapped uh, we flapped artificial wings quite a bit, um, and eventually learned to fly. And in learning to fly, um, 
by means that did not involve the flapping and all those things, we actually figured out quite a bit about how, how birds fly as right. well as uh, how we eventually did it. Uh, do you think that a machine that seems as free as a human is a realistic possibility? Is it something we should expect? Should we expect to answer the phone, um, assuming that the phone is a long-term part of our technology, or whatever replaces the phone, should we expect to interact with machines and not have to have any more doubts about their freedom and their sentience and their consciousness than we feel it's appropriate to entertain about ourselves? You're asking tough questions, but yeah. we are getting closer and closer to a formulation that is something that we could tackle in computer science. So we started with our machines, can they be free? Can they be free as, as free as humans? And now the question is, can we replicate the mental, uh, you know, uh, communicate the, can we, can we replicate the mental thought process that a human being has in a machine? And I think the answer even to the third question is it depends. Mm -hmm. So there, I mean, there are things that computers can already do, um, that mimic the logical thought processes of a human being. Um, and I say logical, not in terms of trying to be specific about it, but generally speaking, there are things that computers do that are like things that human beings do in very specific spaces. Computers can play chess. Computers can, um, you know, drive a car. They can do all kinds of different things. They can let us know when um, weather is coming, which previously some people just would eyeball the sky and say, yep, gonna rain. You know, now we have computers that can do that kind of thing too. So in very specific contexts with very specialized um, software that has been written for that purpose, computers can do a lot of things that human beings can do. And they can leverage the computational depth that human beings don't have the ability to do in general to really, really enhance the result. So for example, um, a human being can only observe a small number of things in a lifetime. They can only read a certain number of pages full of words in their lifetime because they are biological creatures that can die. Um, and there's a physical limit to the speed at which we can do things. Computers are much, much faster than we are, and we leverage them for this purpose. They're much more accurate than we are. They're less likely to be prone or tired or make mistakes. I mean, they, you know, machines can overheat, which one could think of as an approximation for tiredness. But I, I guess my point is, getting back to the whole idea, is that in a very limited context, we can mimic the actions of a human being. But if you think about it, all of these tasks that I'm talking about are fundamentally based on logic with a very specific purpose, and they have an objective that they're working their way towards, and when they achieve that objective, they know they've gotten success. And what human beings excel at is being able to modify, change, or identify the objective, which so far machines aren't very good at. So, so it may be in our best interest not to simply make machines like us, but to appreciate the difference and uh, relish the diversity that uh, the different perspectives might bring. 
Well, we've talked about a lot of different things, and I suspect we'll uh, be continuing the conversation both uh, sort of on the air and off the air. But uh, why don't we wrap up this episode for today, and uh, thank you for um, yet another engaging conversation, which I'm sure is going to lead to all kinds of interesting things we'll talk further about, write about, and uh, maybe even give presentations in places about. Uh, But for today, uh, Ankur, thanks for being on the show once again, and to everyone out there, thanks for listening. Bye for now. Thank you.